Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Today's episode has been sponsored by Jay McLaughlin. Jay McLaughlin is a timeless lifestyle brand with incredible style and a spirit of connection. I am obsessed with Jay McLaughlin and have been so honored that they are sponsoring my Zibiverse tour. It just so happens that the tour goes to so many communities and areas of the country that have Jay McLaughlin stores. And I love that the brand is philanthropic through Jay McLaughlin's local and loyal programming, host store events to give back to organizations that are meaningful to Jay McLaughlin's local communities. I also love the fact that the clothes are just so chic They make me feel polished and modern, and the best part is that most of the line comes in fabrics that don't wrinkle. I especially love the dresses, the cashmere sweaters, the other sweaters. You'll see them all over my Instagram. I typically tag at Jay McLaughlin, and so you can check it out. It is absolutely one of my favorite brands, and I am over the moon excited to be working with them. In fact, I want to share the love with all of you. Jay McLaughlin is giving 20% off new customers and listeners of my podcast with special code ZIBBY20, capital Z-I-B-B-Y 20. That's 20% off for new customers and listeners of the podcast with special code capital Z-ZIBBY20. Take advantage of it today. My favorites are this white, open, long cashmere sweater that I've been wearing on every flight that I've taken on this tour. I have a blue with light blue horizontal striped sweater, several dresses I even wore on Corny America. Check it out, Jay McLaughlin. Thanks so much. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast that you're listening to right now. Thank you so much called Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. It is a daily podcast, 365 days a year. And each day we talk to an author about all of the things related to their career, their book, their life, and more in 30 minutes or less, because who has time? I am now an author myself, although I wasn't when I started this podcast, and you can get my new memoir, Bookends, a memoir of love, loss, and literature, wherever books are sold starting July 1st, and my children's book, Princess Charming. You can learn more about me at zibbyowens.com, but really, you're here to learn more about the authors, and that is what we're going to do. Also, be sure to check out all the other podcasts in the Zcast Podcast Network. You can learn more at zcastnetwork.com. Dot com and definitely check out those shows as well. Lois Lowry is the author of The Windaby Puzzle, History and Story. Lois Lowry has been awarded the Newbery Medal twice, first for Number the Stars and then for The Giver. 
the author of more than 40 books for children and young adults, including the New York Times bestselling Giver Quartet and the popular Anastasia Krupnik series, which I read like all the time as a child. She has received countless honors, among them the Boston Globe Horn Book Award, the Dorothy Canfield Fisher Award, the California Young Reader Medal, and the Mark Twain Award. She writes, my books have varied in content and style, yet it seems that all of them deal essentially with the same general thing, the importance of human connections. She lives in Maine and in the winter sometimes flees to Florida for a bit of sun. Welcome, Lois. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss your latest book, The Windaby Puzzle. Okay, thank you. (laughs) This is my first opportunity, actually, to talk about that book. Oh, I'm honored. I am also honored that you're coming on this podcast. I've been reading your books my entire life. I was like, do you think there's any way she'd say yes? So anyway, I am just over the moon excited. And this new book is so interesting. I learned so much, particularly the way you analyzed and thought about like how to recreate someone's life and all the research you must have done to, or did you make it all up? Anyway, why don't you tell, why don't you tell readers what the Windy Puzzle is about? Okay. Uh, I first have to explain that timing is all. This was 2020, spring of 2020. We all remember that was the beginning of the pandemic when things started to fall apart. And uh, my husband went off in an ambulance to the hospital and I couldn't visit him, of course. And he was gone for 86 days. I was home alone. And of course, I'm an introvert anyway, most writers are. So being home alone is not a hardship for me. But I was spending all my time reading. I'm just remembering I was also, we all panicked in those early days. I was also having groceries delivered to my house from Whole Foods. This is more than you need to know. No, I love it. I love all this stuff. Yeah, I. And uh, one day I didn't realize that the groceries had been delivered and were on my front porch. And I let the dog out and the dog went through the grocery bags and removed a roast chicken, uh, which he then buried under my uh, rhododendrons. Okay, that's neither here nor there. (laughs) The way my life was at that time. But in the course of of, uh, sitting around and reading everything I could get my hands on, which I always do anyway. I happened upon an article, I don't even remember where it was, and it might have been, you know, scrolling through my phone uh, about this body that had been found in northern Germany. And it had been found in 1952, so this wasn't new news. I don't recall why it was being written about at that time. But I looked at a picture of this body, which had been found in a peat bog, and of course many such bodies have been found, I now know. I now know too. (laughs) And the interesting thing is that they're not, although they've been there for a long time, they're not skeletons because the chemical composition of the peat preserves them. And so their skin is intact and they have fingernails and facial expressions. And uh, it's all kind of macabre, but I found it fascinating, particularly because this particular body had been deemed to be a 13-year-old girl. And those are my people. Those are the people I think about all the time because I write primarily for that sort of person. A 13-year-old girl is my ideal audience often. And also, in order to do that writing, I go back into being my 13-year-old self. So when I saw this body, the face of this child, uh, I started wondering why she had died at that age. And there's no way to know, of course, there's no written history. But that's when I started doing the research. 
at the same time, I did this too quickly, I began to write a story about that girl. It had been determined by carbon dating that she was 2,000 years old. She'd been alive in the first century. So without doing enough research, I started writing a story. I, I Googled old German names on my computer. I gave her a name. She began to be real. And I gave her a life. And I was aiming toward, unfortunately, uh, a death because that's what the story was going to be about. How and why had this child died 2,000 years ago, drowned in a peat bog? Uh, so uh, I was writing that story and, and going about it, as I always do, creating a character, creating a life, secondary characters, a, a setting, what was her home like? And now and then I would do research. What did people live in in, in uh, the first century? And so I was able to create all that. And then, of course, as I went along doing more research about that particular body, I discovered that a later scientist with better access to things like DNA and CAT scans, which hadn't been available when the girl was found. A later scientist used all those tools and announced, ta-da, it's not a girl, it's not 13, uh, it's a 16-year-old boy. So instead of throwing away in anger all the stuff I'd written, I kept it and I wrote a second story about the 16-year-old boy. And it's quite clear in the book that these are made up people, and it's just speculation. Uh, what might a child's life, an adolescent's life, have been like at that time? And why would they have died in such a bizarre and horrible fashion? So that's what that book is about. And the original title, I thought of this when you held it up. The original title was what the scientist had called that body. They named all those bodies by the place in which they were found. And this one they called, and still do, The Windaby Child. And that's what I named the book. Often I don't name a book until after it's written, and then I pluck a phrase out or find something that seems just right. But this was called The Windaby Child. And then it was the editor who at some point suggested, rightly, I guess, I don't guess. Rightly, I know uh, <laughs> that teenagers will not pick up a book with child in the title. Hmm. And you didn't want to leave out a potential audience simply because of what I had called the book. So they asked me to rename it. And I thought of, you know, after a while, you start thinking of titles and and you think of too many of them and you try to be alliterative. And after a while, they all just seem terrible. But but because there was an element of trying to put together pieces of a puzzle in this book, and that's what I ended up calling it. But it's still, uh, when you held it up and said the name, and I saw the name because I've got the same advanced reader's copy right here, it still doesn't feel like exactly the right title, but it was the best I could come up with. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll we'll run with it. We'll make it that's perfect. <laughs> The 16-year-old boy, is that the character who's the friend, right? That they went to the bog uh, together? Well, in, instead of creating an entirely new 16-year-old boy, I used a boy who had been in, in the first right, story. that's right. Okay. And yeah. then told his story. Right, yes. right, right. Yeah, yeah, I figured as much. And then what about, well, first of all, the whole bioluminescence of the peat bog, 
I did not know. That is why people thought they were sort of seeing spirits, which I thought was a nice little science fact. So thank you for Googling and and teaching me a little something for the day. And also why when the girl was found was half her head shaved. Did you make that up or was there? Okay. So I, I jumped over that part in the original finding of the body. Uh, she had long blonde hair, which is still visible on the body, but only on one side of her head. And the hair had been removed from the other side. And she was blindfolded with a piece of multicolored fabric. So I had to account for those two things. And so in doing the research, I discovered, <laughs> I mean, there, there were many places I could find bits and pieces of information. But the best source, actually, was from a Roman historian, Tacitus, first century, who had traveled to northern Germany, which was not yet part of the Roman Empire, but he had written about the Germanic tribes and and how they lived. And I can remember thinking, hey, I I took four years of Latin in high school. I I thought I could read it in the original Latin. I didn't even try. There were (laughs) translations. But in, it was in Tacitus that I discovered there were particular crimes for which the hair might be shaved. Drowning in a peat bog was the sentence given to women who were adulterous. So that was one possibility that this 13-year-old child had sneaked off into the woods with somebody's husband, but it, it didn't feel right for me. Uh, so I had to account for the hair and blindfold uh, in other ways, while while remaining true to what I had learned about the rituals and the religious ceremonies that the people did have at that time. Then, later, when it was deemed to be not a girl but a boy, it was also announced that the hair had probably not been shaved as some kind of punishment, but that the peat cutters in grasping and digging up the body had torn the hair off of one side of the head. And that it was not actually a blindfold, that it was probably a piece of fabric that the boy had used to tie back his long hair. And in the burial or the digging up, it had simply been pulled down over his eyes. So there are all sorts of explanations, and we'll never know which of them, if any of them, are true. Well, much more interesting to have it be a blindfold. I think. <laughs> you know, in the book, you start out by basically telling the reader in part one, when you call it history, exactly what you've said here. And you start it with an introduction where you discuss it. But you do have a portion in here when you talk about your own life and how, can I just read this little paragraph about you? You say, we live our stories in various locations. Some of us perhaps end where we start without ever having explored other realms. Others find it hard to stay put. Me? I was born on a tropical island. I moved later to a big city, then to a small town, then to another city in a different country, then to another and another and another. I had siblings. Along the way, I was educated. Eventually, I married and had four children. I lived in different kinds of houses, big ones, small ones, old ones, new ones. I had dogs and cats, several horses along the way, and once briefly, a pet raccoon. Definitely want to ask you about that. A bicycle and another bicycle and cars and more cars and more. I went back again for more education. I chose a career. My children grew up. One died. I loved and I was loved. I grew old. Those facts are not particularly interesting, but when I embellish them with the details that surround each fact and what those details meant, how important they were, then the story is filled out and raises questions and takes on meaning, 
and the story gradually becomes me. Oh, and that could be said with different details, of course, for any human being. Yeah. Oh my gosh. What tropical island were you born on? (laughs) I wish I could say something hugely odd or romantic like Easter Island, but uh, actually I was born in Honolulu. My father was a military officer and he was stationed there at the time that I was born. And then World War II began. He went off to the war. Now here's, again, too much information because you didn't ask me all of this, but my mother took her then two children, I had an older sister, back to the little town where our grandparents lived. So I grew up in the best possible circumstances, my early life, elementary school, in a little college town in Pennsylvania, the place I still feel very fond of, though I no longer have any relatives there. Then the war ends, dad comes home briefly. I remember going with him, I was eight when the war ended, uh, to the men's clothing store in in that little town for him to buy some civilian clothes. But then he has to go back to Japan, and he's going to be there for who knows how long. And so after a while, we, my mother, sister, and by then a little brother, went to Japan. So I went through junior high. Junior high no longer exists. Now it's called middle school. I went through junior high in Tokyo. Then the Korean War began, 1950. I was 13 that summer. And dad had to stay. The casualties, my father was on the staff of uh, the hospital in Tokyo. Casualties were coming in from Korea, but he was concerned about our being uh, there. So he sent us back to the States. And we went back to that little town in Pennsylvania until he could return home. And when he did, then high school, New York City. So it was really the best of many possible worlds. Uh, From high school, I I went to college, to Brown in Rhode Island. Where did you go to high school in New York? I'm here now in New York City. Okay, I went to Packer in in Brooklyn Heights. Of course. At that time, it was uh, all girls. Now it's no ed. Uh, it probably was much less expensive then than it is now. <laughs> I, I loved Packer, and I still am in touch with friends from those days. I graduated from there in 1954, wow. uh, many years ago, and uh, but uh, I still have a very fond spot in my heart for Packer. Wow. And for where I lived in New York, best possible piece of real estate. I lived on Governor's Island. Oh, wow. Huh. Now, of course. Very rare. (laughs) I've been over there, and my house, still standing, is now an art gallery, at least when I was there. Who knows what it is now? But people don't live there anymore. But in my day, families lived there. My little brother went to a little school on Governor's Island. He was in fourth grade. But I took a most many kids went off to boarding school when they began high school. But some, like me, would take a boat and then a train and and go to high school in New York City. Wow. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So did all of the moving around in the different communities and cultures inspire you to write for this age or am I just making that up? Well, you're probably making it up, but I think I was always uh, an introvert and introspective and painfully shy. So moving around could have been very difficult for me, having again and again being thrust into a new schoolroom, a new classroom, often in the beginning of the, not, not in the beginning of the year, middle of the year, everybody's already formed their little groups of friends and and I always had the fashions wrong when I moved from one place to another. You know, the fads would be different. But setting that aside, I think the fact that I was curious and introspective made me very, I'm trying to think of the word I mean. Henry James allegedly once said, a writer is someone on whom nothing is lost. I, darn, I can't think of the word. I noticed stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I was observant. Observant is the word I was trying to think of. And, and so I would be in a new situation. Instead of being overwhelmed by it, or as my older sister was, annoyed, oh, we have to move. Uh, she hated that. Well, I loved it because it gave me new stuff to learn about, to think about, to wonder about. Uh, so it was, a, it was a, a wonderful growing up experience for me. Mm-hmm. And when did you start writing? How did it relate to when you had kids and all that? I had always, from the time I learned to read, very young, because my sister taught me when she started school. From the time I knew people wrote books, that's what I always wanted to do. And that's what I majored in at Brown. But it was the 1950s. I went to Brown when I just turned 17 years old majoring in English with a concentration on writing. They had a special writing major. It was an honors program. They let me in, and I loved that. But as I mentioned, it was the 50s, and I had a boyfriend when I got to Brown who was two years older. So he graduated when I was a sophomore, and he wanted to get married. What did I know? I just dropped out of Brown and got married. I had four children. In five years. Oh, my gosh. Before I was 26. So my aspirations of being a writer really got put on hold. But when my youngest child, Ben, went to kindergarten, I went back to college and and then to graduate school and and began writing. Uh, It did not occur to me to write to kids, write for kids. Surprising. Had a house full of 
books that I read to my kids, but I saw myself as a writer for adults. Going to write the great American novel, of course. And so I must have had a lot more energy then than I do now because I had these kids and a house, a big house, dogs and cats, and actually horses for a while out in the pasture. And I also, I had two girls and two boys. I used to make the girls' clothes. I would I would clean up the breakfast dishes and put the sewing machine on the kitchen table and make clothes for the kids. At any rate, at the same time, I was going to school, doing my own, writing my own papers. Uh, and in my spare time, and now I can't remember when I had any spare time, uh, I, I used the same typewriter I had taken to Brown when I was 17 and was writing short stories, which I would send off to magazines, which sent me rejection slips, very often wonderful rejection slips. And there were more magazines then that published fiction than there are now. There are so few now. At any rate, finally, in 1975, perhaps, Red Book still exists, I think, Red Book, but I don't think it publishes fiction anymore. But they bought a story I had written, published it, and it was a story for adults, but it was seen through the eyes of a child. And a children's book editor wrote to me after having read that story, wrote to me in care of Red Book, which forwarded her letter. And said, you sound like somebody who might be able to write for, for young people. Would you consider writing a book for? And it was a distinguished publisher. So uh, it had not occurred to me to do that. But it was so rare to get an invitation from an editor. They didn't promise to publish anything. But still, they were interested. I wasn't going to have to just send it in cold and hope somebody read it. And then they did publish that first book in 1977. I was still on the side. Well, I was doing several things. Forget the house, the horses and the dogs and the husband and the kids. Uh, I was also studying photography in graduate school and doing a lot of professional photography. So in my spare time, <laughs> I was still writing for adults. But when that first book was published for what they call young adults, the response from kids was so gratifying, so touching. In those days, this was 1977, no email. Nowadays, I get emails from all those kids, but in those days, it was handwritten letters. And sometimes it was, this is a class assignment, please write me back by November 27th. But more often, it was, it was heartfelt kids who said, you know, this book changed my life. And, and so I began to view with more importance the task of writing for young people. And I continued to do it. I, I continued doing other things as well. But gradually, that became my primary focus. And also, not surprising, the 17-year-old girl who married the 19-year-old boy no, I'm sorry. I was 19 when we got married. He was 21 by then. But those two children grew up and went in different directions. And so my marriage ended. And <laughs> I had to make a living for the first time with my degree in English. And uh, so anyway, it turned out that writing books for kids 
was was the way in which I could do that. That sounds mercenary, and I don't mean it that way, but it, it was the only skill I had, to be honest. Oh. I also have four kids, two boys and two girls. I also got divorced and I'm now remarried. I also got an essay published in Red Book. And I've, I also used to be painfully, painfully shy and I'm still introverted. Anyway, I'm, I'm like, I can relate to some of your story very much. And that's wonderful. The validation that you got in the beginning. And do you just keep coming up with ideas? Like, tell me about like life now. And, and was your husband okay when he came home after the 86 days? Uh, yes, he's in the other room right okay, now. Great. It took him a long time. He lost 30 pounds in those 86 days. He had to learn to walk again. Oh. But that was several years ago. And yeah, yeah he's doing, doing fine. Uh, we're both getting old, but that has nothing to do with COVID. <laughs> Now I've forgotten you had asked me something and I've forgotten. No, just are you continually inspired to keep doing it? Like, how do you come up? Yeah, yeah. How do I come up with things? You know, I have written, well, I haven't counted lately, but I think 52 books. And some of them have fallen into the category of series. There was a very popular series about a character named Anastasia Krupnik. I am well aware. (laughs) And she was fun to do. But if you did nothing but that, I can only speak for myself, it would get tedious after a while. So I like to go back and forth with different kinds of books. This particular new book is the first one I have done that reaches so far back in history. But I have done a couple of others that that, uh, one was set in 19... Well, the time of the uh, flu epidemic. I've done two mm-hmm. in the early, early 19th century. Uh, and I've done lighthearted books. Uh, the one that was published the first year of the pandemic, so a book tour was canceled, uh, was done in verse. Uh, I had not done that before. So I guess I keep myself interested by, by trying different things. And, you know, some have worked better than others. But it's exhilarating to set out on a new adventure each time. I wait until the something strikes me. The way this child's body mm-hmm. uh, caught my interest. You know, professors of writing often are guilty of saying, write what you know about. But I think it's more intriguing to write what you don't know about. Write what you wonder about. Write what you're curious about. Write what you want to know about. So I don't yet, well, I, I do have another book finished, which is scheduled for publication in 2024. But what I'll do after that, I have no idea. Some Something will come to me. Some trigger will happen, and there will be an idea. And, and often what form the first idea takes morphs into something else when I sit down to write it. And that's okay, too. What's the book that's coming out next year? Or 2024, rather. It's it's a realistic, contemporary, middle-grade book. Main character is an 11-year-old girl, but it's about her friendship with the 89-year-old woman who lives next door, whom she considers her best friend. Oh, that's lovely. Can I ask what happened to your child who passed away? Oh, my son, Gray, he was my second child. A girl boy, girl boy. And this is, you know, you ask a simple question and it has a, uh, okay. a background that leads to the answer. But he went to college, majored in economics, didn't really know what he wanted to do. His father, my ex-husband, was a lawyer. 
he had no interest in law school. But he was an adventurer and an athlete, and he wanted to fly. So he took the tests to enter the Air Force and became a fighter pilot in the Air Force. And sadly, that's how he died in a, in a fighter plane. Oh, wow. However, he left me an enormous gift. He had one child uh, who was two years old when he died. And she's my only granddaughter. And she's so much like him. And she, of course, doesn't remember him. She lives in Germany. He had married a German woman. When he was stationed in Germany as a hotshot young lieutenant, <laughs> he went to buy a Porsche, of course. <laughs> uh, here is this beautiful young woman who had majored in languages and business and was the office manager of the Porsche agency. And she took him out for a test drive. And he married her, and, and she and I are still very close. I talked to her by FaceTime uh, last Saturday. Uh, so she still lives in Germany, and I, until the pandemic, I went over there every year, and, and, and she would bring her daughter. I would come, come to Maine to see me. Oh, that is so lovely. Wow. I took after your dad then. Is he the only military? My husband now, who is a doctor, spent his military time, most, most Men of a certain age have spent time in the military yeah. because they were required to. So Howard was a was a Navy doctor for a while, but he didn't make it a career. And my brother was a Navy doctor also. Hmm. Wow. Would you ever consider doing a memoir? I have done one of a sort, and it's called Looking Back. But it is, I think they refer to it as a photographic memoir. My father was a fabulous photographer. It wasn't his profession, but we always had a dark room in our house. So I ended up with mountains of old photographs that are much better than the crummy black and white snapshots that most people had in the 40s. And uh, I was going through them and reliving my life by looking at pictures. And uh, I put them together in sequence, relating them to books I had written. It's hard to describe, but each photograph that was ultimately selected for the book was selected because it also had some relation to a book that I later wrote. And uh, so all of that is put together. It's called Looking Back. Oh, I will have to go get that one now. I will get that next. <laughs> there are two versions of it because they asked me to update it a few years ago. And I did. And so there's some added stuff at the end, but I'm just remembering the cover. The cover of the first version published by Houghton Mifflin, whatever year it was, has a picture of me at age four. And it's a very pretty picture of a little blonde girl with big blue eyes looking at the camera. And then when they redid it, they used a different picture, which, which is actually, I think, a better cover. It's me and my sister, and we're probably six and nine. We're at the beach. We are wearing the ugliest bathing suits you have ever seen standing next to each other, scowling at the camera. <laughs> and you can you can just see what both of them are thinking. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, I'm sorry. I didn't read that ahead of time. I would have, but I'll go back and read it now. This has been so lovely. Thank you for sharing so much of yourself. All the TMI parts were my favorites. <laughs> that's, that's the best. Thanks for being so open and for all you've 
given the world and all of your writing and just for spending 30 minutes of it with me. So thanks. Oh, I've, I've enjoyed it. It's like being in a friend's house and I'm sorry we didn't have a glass of wine or a cup of tea. That would have been lovely. I know. <laughs> Next time. <laughs> okay. Thank all you. right. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 